Welcome to the Modern Law Library Podcast. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and it's time for our annual summer reading list. Uh, This is towards the end of the summer. Many people are about to go back to school, particularly law school. So after my list of picks, please stay tuned because we are going to be rerunning one of my favorites, an interview I did with Catherine M. Young about her book, How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School, which I think just has some really great practical tips. It's data-based. She did some in-depth surveys about what helped people be successful in law school. And it's it's really worth a, a re-listen. If you, if you haven't heard it, listen to it for the first time, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So I have some pretty broad tastes when it comes to reading, but I would say this past year I have moved houses, so that was stressful. So I really went back to my roots, which are military history and then soothing mysteries that don't make me have to use my brain that much. So I will start off with a few history books that I have enjoyed since I last talked to you about what I was up to. First off, we have The Walls Have Ears, The Greatest Intelligence Operation of World War II by Helen Fry. So this book was excellent. It was um, a look at the British eavesdropping program. Basically, they would get together a lot of the German POWs, uh, whether they were lowly submariners or if they were generals. They actually had much cushier settings. But after their interrogations, they would send the POWs back to bugged cells and listen to them talk amongst themselves about what the silly Brits uh, failed to ask them about. And it's actually how they collected much of their intelligence about things like, you know, what the submarine crews were up to or what weapons programs were in the works. And it was just, it was a great book. So I do recommend that. The Walls Have Ears. Next up, a book called The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy, and the Wildlife of an American Commune by Alexander Steele, I think is how you pronounce his last name. That's S-T-I-L-L-E. So this was about a cult that was sort of therapy-based and very popular among artists and theater folks in New York City from the, honestly, it seemed like it was from the 50s through the 80s. It's broadly called the Sullivanians, and it is a wild ride. Um, Jackson Pollock was part of this. That's a name that many people may know. If you are sensitive to discussions about child neglect. It could be upsetting, but it it really is very fascinating to see the way that therapy language was used and weaponized and became this cult of around 300 people. Anyway, very, very interesting. Then we have some basic, you know, the kinds of military history things that just feel soothing to my brain for whatever reason. I read Waterloo, The History of Four Days, Three Armies, and Three Battles by Bernard Cornwell. That was excellent. It really, I I didn't know that much about the Napoleonic Wars. So it was very interesting to me to see how many points at which Waterloo definitely could have gone the other way. I also enjoyed The Thirty Years' War, Europe's Tragedy by Peter H. Wilson and The Habsburgs, To Rule the World by Martin Raddy. 
that book in particular, I was texting people weird Habsburg facts. If that's the kind of thing you enjoy, then The Habsburgs to Rule the World by Martin Ratty would be a great one to pick up. Moving on to more of the mysteries, there was a great book I read called I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. I have enjoyed another one of her books before. It really struck home because it's about a woman podcaster. She is actually doing true crime podcasts and something comes up, which brings her back to a mystery in her own life going to a boarding school in the 90s. And anyone else who was a coming of age in the 1990s, a lot of it will be very interesting and ring true to you, I think. Then Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Benjamin Stevenson. I'm not going to say too much about this because I think that it could provide spoilers, but the narrator may not be 100% reliable, but he is called to an alpine ski vacation by his stepmother. And there is family drama and mystery. Very interesting book. Takes some, some turns that I enjoyed. So I would recommend that one. Then there was the Electra McDonnell series by Ashley Weaver that starts with the book A Peculiar Combination. So this is a safe cracker who her whole family has basically been involved in theft and safe cracking, and she becomes involved with British intelligence in World War II. So that's that's a good time. Then in a different time period and referencing some Jane Austen works, there are two books called The Murder of Mr. Wickham and The Late Mrs. Willoughby. Those are by Claudia Gray, and they involve characters from many of Jane Austen's books coming together to solve a mystery. If you are too overwhelmed with work reading or school reading to really want to curl up with a book, I do have a few television shows that I enjoyed. In the past, I've talked about movies. Honestly, I only have seen one movie in the theater this entire year. And when it comes to Barbie the Oppenheimer, I am disclosing to you, I went to the Barbie movie and I had a very good time. So uh, do enjoy that. For TV shows, I've enjoyed Never Have I Ever, which is a coming of age of an Indian American girl. And oh, I just find it so funny and heartwarming. I think that it has now finished its final season. There are, I believe, three three seasons to enjoy. Mindy Kaling was involved. Never have I ever. Two thumbs up. I surely am not going to be the first person to say The Bear is an excellent TV show. I did like The Bear. It showed me that I really didn't belong in a restaurant kitchen, but it was fascinating to watch people who do. And then if you have not seen Dairy Girls, I absolutely recommend it. It's a comedy that takes place in the 1990s in Belfast. And there are three seasons, each more perfect than the last. Dairy Girls is excellent. And to round it out, um, I watched a series, a British series called SAS Rogue Heroes, that went into the pretty wild origins of the British Army Special Air Service during the Africa campaign in World War II, and very much enjoyed that. So that is what I have been watching and reading over the summer. I also have sometimes recommended 
podcasts that I have enjoyed, in addition to this, obviously prioritize the Modern Law Library, but in addition to my podcast, one that I recently have picked up and really enjoy is called Failure to Launch, and it is about basically the history of space exploration, and there are some really really crazy episodes in there. Um, I found out a lot more about Yuri Gagarin and space toilets. So I, I really do recommend Failure to Launch. All right. We are going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, you're going to hear my 2018 conversation with Catherine Young, author of How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School. Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Catherine M. Young to talk about her book, How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I thought that this was a perfect time to discuss this topic, being as the school year has just started for many, many people. Right. Could you give us a little bit of background about who you are, what led you to write this book, and what your own law school experience was like? Well, so I'm currently a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I work in the sociology department there, and I teach a variety of classes related to policing, surveillance, evidence, and social psychology. I have a JD and a PhD, and most of my research is at the intersection of law and sociology. I'm really interested in how law itself works on the ground. During law school, I became a sociologist. I did my PhD concurrently with my JD, which let me see law school through a fairly unusual lens. I was around the law school for five years after my class graduated, and actually even longer because I was a postdoc at Stanford as well. I started to see social patterns that I became more and more interested in. I saw you know, waves of law students come in and out, fight certain battles, get certain jobs. I did multiple clinics. I was an RA, a TA. I eventually co-taught a class at the law school and got to know, know everyone from you know, custodians to law librarians to faculty members. And just knowing one institution so well from so many different angles really gave me a perspective on law school as a social phenomenon and helped me start to see patterns in what law school's like on a day-to-day basis for students. So as a researcher in training, while I was getting my JD-PhD, I became more and more interested in these sociological aspects of the law school experience. So eventually, um, beginning during my postdoc, I set out to study it more systematically. So I ended up visiting uh, 12 or 13 law schools, conducting interviews everywhere I went, interviewing lots of law students, and also designing a survey that was eventually answered by about 1,100 students from over 100 different U.S. law schools. And that, that data is really the core of the book. You know, there are a lot of books out there that talk about how to make law review or how to get a firm job, but not much out there about how to figure out whether that's what you really want. So I wanted to write a book to kind of fill this gap, something that would be you know, research-based and very sociological, but also accessible. You know, the book I wish I could have read while I was in law school and that I wish I could have given to my friends. This really makes me think of, say, Jane Goodall doing primate studies and, you know, she's embedded and she's watching. But was that actually how you felt as a 1L, 2L, 3L, that you could step back and observe what was happening? Or what were your kind of emotional feelings as you were going through law school? You know, it's funny that you ask that. Um, because I, I am an ethnographer and, you know, I've, I've done work on things, you know, everything from parole hearings to, uh, you know, I studied cockfighters in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, that sort of you know, was more purely ethnographic. 
this kind of evolved into something that was ethnographic. It certainly didn't feel like that, especially at the beginning of law school. You know, I had very much a love-hate relationship with law school, as I think, you know, a lot of people probably do. You know, even if I didn't think the structure of law school was particularly effective, even if I didn't adore everything I was doing at every minute, I still believed kind of deeply in the point of law school and the idea of law school. But it was also, you know, kind of sporadically soul crushing. <laughs> you know, there were definitely moments in law school where I saw myself as a sociologist start to do things. Like I would count, I remember my 2L year, I would map in all my classes where people were sitting by race and gender because I was just sort of curious. I never thought about writing about law school. I was just like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I wonder what these patterns are like. So I think that I started thinking sociologically about law school long before I ever thought I might write a book about it. That's interesting. So when this comes out, it's going to be late September, and I think we're going to have a lot of 1L students looking around and thinking to themselves, what have I done? Yeah. What would you tell an overwhelmed 1L in the first few weeks of class? What would be kind of your top points that you would want them to be thinking about? Hmm. Well, that's interesting because my I think my points for an overwhelmed 1L might be different from my points for an overwhelmed 2L or 3L. I think that the key take-homes I'd want to give a 1L, let's see. So first, I would want to tell them that there are a lot of right ways to do law school. That law school law students tend to come in as um, and really quickly start to imbibe this idea that there is a right way to do law school, and it involves law review, and it involves clerkships, and it involves working at a firm, and that everything else kind of falls short. The best thing you could do in law school is to try to approximate this ideal. I would encourage them to be incredibly resistant to that idea and to remember that, you know, it's not simply like we're all special snowflakes, some of us can't get clerkships. That's not at all what I mean. I mean that there really is no ideal way to do law school and that your job in law school is to find your way to do law school, not to approximate what you think is the ideal. So that's one thing. A second thing I would tell them is to um, really think about and really be conscious of trying to adopt what psychologist Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. And that simply means understanding yourself as being in the middle of a process of becoming. So, you know, if you were talking to a first grader and you know, they didn't get long division, you wouldn't think that they were stupid. Well, you're not stupid just because you don't magically apprehend the structure of a tort. It's going to feel like that because your classmates all come from different places and some of them are going to get stuff faster than you and some of them are going to be better at faking it than you are. But to really not see law school or law school exams as a test of, you know, how smart you, you really are, but really as, you know, it only matters whether you're a little bit better today than you were yesterday. That, that's really what matters. And I think the, the third thing I, I would tell them is to find a way to hang on to the things that make you feel like yourself and that make you happy. In these 1,100 surveys I did of law students across the country, one thing I asked them was, what is the time in the last week when you have been the happiest? And the results were so eye-opening. Uh, they said things like, you know, when I was making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I was listening to music or when I was throwing the ball for my dog, it was just these sort of little moments that they found away from law school to feel like themselves and to really sort of find, hang on to and appreciate those moments. You know, you don't have to, you know, if you're a saxophone player, you don't have to play the saxophone for an hour a day. That's probably unrealistic. 
But if you can pick it up for five minutes a day and just feel like yourself for those five minutes, it'll go a long way to preserving your sanity. One thing that you bring up in the book that I think that this applies not only to 1Ls through 3Ls, but also postgrads, also sometimes lawyers who have been in their profession for decades, is this idea of the imposter syndrome. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit with our listeners about the imposter syndrome and how it really applies in the way you saw it acting out in law school and then afterwards in legal careers? Well, you know, a lot of us have heard of imposter syndrome, but it's something that, that's been defined in a number of different ways. So, I mean, it really at its base, it's the persistent sense that you aren't really equipped to be wherever you are, that you're sort of half faking it. Like imposter syndrome isn't a diagnosable mental disorder. It's more this constellation of thought patterns. So here's how it might show up in law school. I give some examples in the book, but here are a couple others. You know, you, uh, you know, go out for law review and you're not chosen for law review. You think, see, I'm not really good enough to do very well here. You are chosen for law review and you think, gosh, I guess there wasn't very much competition. It's a pattern of thinking in which you attribute your successes to flukes, or a lack of competition, but when you fail, you interpret it as evidence of a lack of ability or a lack of intelligence. It's a tendency to kind of over-internalize failure and see it as evidence of, of who you truly are. And you know, I have a lot of graduate students in sociology, and I talk to them as well about imposter syndrome. It's, it's something that a lot of us struggle with. Disproportionately, women tend to struggle with it, research suggests, but really everyone, everyone does in one realm or another. And I think that it's something that You know, talking to attorneys who have been practicing for a few years, I really think that they start kind of letting go of that after, you know, usually a few years of practice because they've been doing something long enough that they kind of look around and say, oh, I I guess I'm a prosecutor now. But there's no, you know, magic moment of validation where they feel like they have, you know, they finally stepped into the role that they're supposed to be in. You know, I've talked to judges, I've talked to law professors, I've talked to lots of people who are just like, well, it's really crazy that someone's letting me do job X. You know, there, there are a lot of things we can do to deal with imposter syndrome, but it's not something that will just magically go away. This leads into another insight you had that I think is helpful for all of us to keep in mind in our lives, which is you really caution students not to think that they know what is going on in the minds of their fellow students. Could you expand on that and just talk about ways that we can sort of reset our thinking when we get into this spiral about, oh, I'm the only one who's really struggling. I'm the only one who is going through this. And also everyone else is thinking about me and judging me. And also I know for sure what this say you know, conservative Catholic student must think about this case and and just making a lot of assumptions. Can you talk Mm. about ways to kind of break that mental cycle? Yeah, well, that's a really big question. So feel free to ask follow-ups if I don't address all of it. It's a great question. You know, one thing that I would say is to remember that you tend to know about other people's successes, but you tend not to know about other people's failures. I learned while I was writing the book that Justice Sotomayor actually got no offer to Paul Weiss when she was a law student. You know, she was told not to come back after her summer there. And um, it appears not to have impeded her advancement as a lawyer. I think she's done okay. She's done. She's done well for herself. (laughs) I mean, if Sonia Sotomayor can get no offer to Paul Weiss, I don't think any of us can get too upset about about our little, you know, quote unquote failures along the way. You know, but just to say that you don't know about anyone else's failures. You also don't know about what they're going through personally. You know, one thing that was 
fascinating to me in interviewing people and reading their responses was that almost everyone I talked to was secretly nursing some kind of, you know, either they were going through depression or they had just lost a parent or, you know, they had failed a class and didn't want anyone to know or they were dealing with a disease. I mean, it was like everyone had some sort of hidden thing that they didn't want anyone else to find out about. And Gosh, it just made me feel like if everyone could just out themselves about everything that they're going through at the same time, we would all feel a whole lot less alone. So, you know, to remember that not only do you not not know about anyone's failures, but you don't know about all the stuff that they're secretly going through. And that I guess to assume that your classmates are a little bit more complicated than you might think they are. I think that this would be a good segue into having you read a passage from your book, just to give people an idea of the the style of writing you use, which I think is pretty approachable. And it's about your fellow students who you can really see as, you know, jerks and competitors and or friends. And it, it's on page 169 for anyone who already has a copy of the book. Would you mind reading the passage with your advice on joining student organizations? Mm-hmm. Sure. I talked to a few students who refused to join student organizations altogether, saying things like, if my peers are competitive jerks, why would I want to spend even more time with them? Well, I don't buy this. First of all, not all your peers are competitive jerks. Second, sitting in class with people only lets you see them through one lens. And I bet you're not seeing some of the quieter folks at all. Obnoxious people occupy a disproportionate share of psychic space. Joining student organizations will let you see peers in different lights as managers, collaborators, and idea generators. You won't always like what you see, but some of the time you'll be pleasantly surprised to learn what your classmates are like in a different context. Second, make it a personal policy not to talk about your grades, ever. I know this is tough because if you share a little information, then someone might reciprocate with a little information and it is tempting to glean a precious tidbit about where you stand relative to someone else but it's not worth it, especially when it comes to your friends and or your study group. I recommend a pact between friends and between study group members that grades are off limits. It's not simply that no one is obligated to share, but that everyone is explicitly prohibited. Removing the possibility of discussion about grades reduces tension and relegates grades to the role that they deserve in your interpersonal relationships. None. One alum said his best advice to current students was, quote, never discuss grades. I never did, still haven't, am still friends with several classmates, and they still don't know how I ranked. No one cares, and if they ask, walk away. I did that, and it was the best decision I could have made. That's the end of his quote. And I write, in addition to keeping mom about your own grades, never ask other people about theirs. It's unseemly. Third, several people suggested simply asking for help when you need it whether it's in the form of a borrowed computer cord, a hornbook recommendation, or a pre-OCI interview practice. Law students love appearing as if they don't need help. But once you pierce the veil of self-sufficiency, it's often surprising how much they like helping others. As one student put it, quote, it's a common misconception that everyone in law school has a competitive nature leading to cutthroat behavior. While the environment is certainly competitive, it is also full of helping hands if you simply ask. And that's the end of that student's quote. I I go on later in that chapter to talk about how you deal with that portion of law students who, who really are competitive jerks. And I have some strategies for that as well. 
Well, thank you for reading that portion of your book. And if anyone wants those tips, they can pick up how to be sort of happy in law school. I think that we should also address chapter five, which is when you ask the question, should you drop out? Which I think every single law student thinks at some point in their time at law school, should I drop out? And you start essentially by saying, you are allowed to leave. And then a really interesting and useful breakdown of the things to consider. What made you include this chapter and put it really pretty far towards the front of this book? Yeah, um, well, two reasons. One is when I interviewed law students and when I interviewed uh, law school alums, about a third of them had seriously considered dropping out at some point. I was surprised it was that high. I had considered dropping out. Most of my friends had considered dropping out. I don't know if I ever seriously considered dropping out, but many, many people do. And I sort of thought it was more idiosyncratic. But then when I was talking to others, no, it turns out this is on everyone's mind. So that's one reason I included it. But another reason I included it is that it's so easy to start thinking, I think in other graduate school as well, but especially in law school, that you are on this treadmill. There's nothing you can do about it. Now you are stuck. You are in debt and you've got to finish this. What I wanted to make clear to students was that you have to take agency for what you're doing. I mean, the decision to leave would be a choice, but if you choose to stay, that's also a choice. And I think that viewing your law school experience as a choice, something you are you know, going to continue, not something that was foisted upon you, um, can be really useful cognitively in framing your experience. And then what do you think were some of the most common threads that you saw, not when you were speaking to students, but when you were speaking to people, say, 10 years out, alums, people who had been through law school, what would they have wanted to tell their younger selves? Well, that's a, that's a great question. So um, there was a pretty wide range of things that people would like to tell their pre-law school selves. And I, I tried to, you know, really include a lot of those things in the book. But the thing that stuck out for me the most was the number of people who would tell their pre-law or early law school self to go get therapy, to go get mental health help in some formal way. You know, the rate of depression and anxiety is just astronomical in law school if we compare it to same-aged people who are not in law school. About one in three law students screen positive for anxiety, about one in six screen positive for clinical depression, and actually about the same number have already been formally diagnosed with clinical depression, but really no one talks about it. So, so many people had finally, years out of law school, gotten some, some mental health treatment or found ways to deal with anxiety, self-injury, prescription drug use, and they wondered why they hadn't done that earlier. The second big theme that I saw among alums was people who wished that they had asked for help. There were dozens of people who said, you know, and I count myself among this number, who said, you know, I faced this really hard thing in law school. Why didn't I ask for help? Why did I just take it on myself and think that this was something for me to endure? I mean, in my case, it was the end of my first semester in law school, and it was finals time, and the hot water and the heat both went out in the house that I was renting, and I had a really bad case of pneumonia. And what I should have done was go to my dean of students and say, all these crazy things are happening, and I'm super sick. I'm not going to do very well on exams. Can I take them later? 
that didn't even occur to me. I just thought, well, I guess I just have to deal with this. I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps kind of thinking. There were so many people who had stories like that, particularly if they came from working class backgrounds. So many people said that they wish they had asked for help. Zero people said they wish they had asked for less help. So I think that's something for students to consider. Now, you mentioned students from working class backgrounds. A lot of different demographics end up going to law school, but they can have some very different experiences while they're there. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to feel like an outsider in law school when it can feel like there is maybe a template that you are supposed to fit? So one of the questions I asked the students I surveyed um, was just a very open-ended question about in what ways are you different from other law students? In what ways are you similar to other law students? What aspects of your identity affect law school? You know, things like that. And so as we might imagine, they brought up a bunch of things. You know, race came up a lot. Gender came up so much more than I was expecting. Sexual orientation, class came up constantly. Political affiliation, you know, all of these things tended to come up. So there are lots of reasons why students feel isolated. And I devote subsections of the book to kind of each of these really big themes and talk a little bit about how people can deal in really specific ways based on their identity. But just in terms of general advice for students who are kind of dealing with being the only you know, X, Y, or Z in their class or, or feeling really isolated, I think there are a number of things they can do. So one thing that students told me was that they actually found it really useful to connect with other people who were the only X, Y, or Z in their class. One of my favorite stories was from this woman who was the only black woman in her law school class. And she, she was really conservative, very religious uh, from the South, became best friends with this gender nonconforming, liberal, white lesbian in her class because they both felt totally isolated. And they became best friends and they learned so much about each other and about different ways of being isolated just because they had connected in that way. So connecting with other people who might feel isolated can be um, more powerful than people expected. You know, another thing that really helps students is to find mentors who share some aspect of their identity, either within law school or outside of law school. So there are lots of organizations, you know, uh, black law student organizations, but also, you know, things like black lawyer organizations, other racial organizations for practicing attorneys. There are all kinds of these things, some of which I, I give examples of in the book. And actually, I have a, uh, an appendix where I, I give a lot of contact information for how people can find mentors. This is something people found really invaluable. But, I, you know, I think it's partly the fault of law schools, too. I mean, law schools very much perpetuate this myth that, you know, no one really knows what they're doing in law school. And maybe we all come from diverse backgrounds, but we're all starting at the same place. And I think that does students a disservice. Some people come in with a whole lot more cultural capital and a whole lot more social capital than others. So if you come in and law school doesn't fit you like a glove, you tend to feel like you're somehow deficient. And I think it's important that students know that they're really not. I can identify with that personally. I came to work for the ABA Journal and I may not have been a lawyer, but both of my parents were. And certainly, you know, when I was entering both undergrad and, and graduate school, I had a mother who had worked in a university administration. I just knew how many of these institutions functioned. I may not have known necessarily who the precise person was to approach with a question, but 
I understood, okay, there will be a ladder of people. This is probably the likely name of the office that I would go to for this and was clued into a lot of the different social structures. So my experience in law school probably would not be the same as someone who may be the first person in their family to have any sort of advanced degree. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really true. I mean, you know, personally, I had gone to Stanford for undergrad and I, I, you know, I identify as coming from a working class background and I thought I totally understood the social class thing. I thought, oh, I know what it's like to be among, you know, upper middle class peers. I've got it down. Law school was a whole different ballgame and a whole different level of privilege. And I wasn't the only one who had that experience. There were so many students who had that experience. And also just because law schools are a lot smaller, you know, there were a number of students who maybe had been, um, you know, members of an LGBT organization as an undergrad or some other organization as an undergrad, but then they came to law school and they were the, you know, one of like two or three people. And it suddenly felt super isolating. And so they described their identities or different aspects of their identities becoming more important for them in law school than they ever had been before, simply because they had never felt this isolated before. Well, Catherine, I want to thank you for joining us. But as a last question, can you please talk about the section of your book that I think will also be extremely helpful for students, which is designing your post-law school life? For people who are in law school right now, sometimes, you know, I hear people just being so overwhelmed with what's happening in the moment. But I think that some of your tips are very helpful in thinking forward about what is the kind of person you want to be, what is the kind of work you want to do. So could you talk a little bit about tips for designing your post-law school life? Well, you know, the big tip that I would give people is to not let risk aversion completely dictate what you do. So many students talked about, you know, typically it was going into a firm job, but there were a lot of paths that people took because they thought it was you know, safe, or they thought it was, you know, it would, quote, unquote, keep their options open. And, you know, I encourage students to think about precisely what options are you keeping open by taking a particular path, rather than just kind of taking the safe path, take the interesting path. You know, I interviewed a lot of alums for this book, and not a single one of them said, I was so glad that I played it safe early on. The people who were really happy were people who chose first jobs that sparked their interest somehow. Maybe they were a little weird, maybe they were a little random, but it was something in which they were, you know, genuinely a little bit interested. Not necessarily full-on fired up, but if you're interested in a job that you take, you're going to work harder, you're going to do better, you're going to distinguish yourself, and you're going to develop the kinds of connections that lead to interesting jobs in the legal profession. You're going to be able to succeed. And really not to make too much of your first job, not to feel like your first job is pigeonholing you. The After the JD study, um, which is a a really big multi-phase study that's done of people after they graduate from law school, finds that people um, who are young lawyers not only change jobs, you know, two, three, four times in their first 10 years out, but they completely changed types of law that they practice. It was so much more common than I had expected for a student to go from doing water law to doing prosecution, you know, or vice versa. 
and that was really echoed, you know, from the alums that I talked to who just said, don't make too much of it. Choose something interesting, go for it and keep your eyes open. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. No, thank you for having me. If people want to get a hold of how to be sort of happy in law school or to get in touch with you to talk more about your research, how can they do that? Well, I have a website for the book. Um, it's sortofhappy.com. And I talk a little bit about the book on the website. And I also have a big appendix of resources for law students and practicing lawyers who are going through various issues. So I think it's worth checking out. And also, um, you know, if you have questions about the book or about your law school experience, I get emails from people all the time. Feel free to contact me through the website. All right. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And if you could, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast listening service. 